I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Quick heads up, this episode contains one bit of profanity a few minutes in. There's like British Halloween here. Mm-hmm. Arrow. Peppermint. I'm not a fan of peppermint and chocolate. I watched the video of you and Tom Colicchio sampling a range yes. of, yeah. of chocolate bars while you were filming together for Top Chef yep. in London. And... You did something, Gail, that really that caught my eye. It went by in a second. Most people probably didn't even notice it. You were eating a candy bar called a Wispa. It's a Wispa. It's just a Wispa. Which is a chocolate with, with a, a big caramel ribbon in the middle, and you broke it in half, and you pulled the two halves apart, which created a long, <laughs> stretchy caramel thread. Yes. And you did this very deft maneuver where you just twisted your wrist a few times quickly mm. to wrap the thread of caramel around the outside of the candy bar. It was almost like the candy equivalent of twirling spaghetti on a fork. Yes. And you did it so effortlessly that I thought, this is not the first time Gail has, has no. done this move. Let me tell you something, Dan. <laughs> I am a professional, number one. Yeah. It's not my first rodeo. Um, and I'm not going to waste good caramel. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. This week, as Bravo airs the season 20 finale of the cooking competition show Top Chef, I'm sitting down with Gail Simmons, who's been a judge on the show since its inception. And that role has made Gail one of the most widely eaten people in America. And yes, I made that term up. It's like being widely read, but much more delicious. As a judge on Top Chef, she's eaten thousands of dishes made by some of the best chefs in the country. And Top Chef films in a different city each season, so that means when Gail has days off, she's eating her way through cities like Portland, Honolulu, Paris, Macau, and Mexico City. And when she's on the show judging, she's taking all those past experiences, all her knowledge of food and cooking, and training her critical palate on the dish in front of her. I will admit, when the plates came to the table, I did not think that you had really understood bangers and mash. And I discovered, although it took me a minute, that every flavor was replicated, especially when you drizzled that gravy on top. Gail is so widely eaten, in fact, she told me people expect her to have intimidatingly high standards. People ask me that all the time. Like, when you go out to eat with your friends, are you a pain in the butt? And, you know, you can't just, like, go out to eat and not judge your food like an asshole. Am I allowed to say that <laughs> word? Yeah, sure. Um, and it's—I am not. Food is joy for me. It is pleasurable. And it is also not always the purpose of a gathering. Not that it's not always important as a part of it. 
But I am fully capable of going out and eating sometimes mediocre food and not caring and just enjoying the place, the people, et cetera. Also, when I have a great meal and I'm like off duty, I just love having a great meal because that's how I got into it in the first place. So uh, I, don't, I really don't think I am jaded. I still get excited to go to a new restaurant or to go back to a restaurant that I love or to try like a new thing. Gail has actually been eating widely since she was a kid. She grew up in Toronto, but it was important to both her parents to expose Gail and her brothers to other places. Gail especially loved going to South Africa, where her father's from. I gather you're a big fan of biltong. Huge. Which is like, kind of like beef jerky. Is that right? I haven't had it. Kind of, but I've far superior. Okay. okay. I would say. <laughs> but yeah. I'm not judgmental at all. Um, <laughs> yes, biltong is sort of like the national snack food of South Africa. It is... You know, traditionally dried beef, but then also comes in many, many forms of many different proteins that is salted and air dried to preserve it. And it's delicious. The difference between it and jerky, I would say, is that there's no sugar at all. Gail and her family loved biltong so much, they'd smuggle it back to Canada. The place we would get it in Cape Town would vacuum seal it for us and wrap it, and then we would wrap it in our clothes and check it through, and we would arrive at JFK, and there were all these dogs at JFK sniffing for, <laughs> you know, bombs and drugs and meat. And so we were always petrified that the dogs at JFK were going to take it from us. But we would buy it in tenderloins, you know, a full piece about— one or two feet long. Wow. So we would keep it in the freezer and just slice off a piece or two at a time and chew on it. Now, that story is not even the best indication of how into food the Simmons family was. Gail's mom, Renee, wrote food column for the Globe and Mail, Canada's largest newspaper. And she ran a small cooking school out of their home starting in the late 70s. I have so many memories of sort of sneaking into the kitchen while she was holding these classes. And um, all my friends' parents were there. She once did a, a, a dad's, a men's cooking class, and that was sort of a big deal, right, because men did not cook. Uh, it was sort of trailblazing. And was her food column like more restaurant reviews or it was more like recipes? What, what, what was she writing about? It was recipes and it was topics about food, ingredients. You know, I remember her writing an article about comparing the Montreal and the Toronto bagel, which is a hot topic to this day. I remember her writing a column about ingredients like shad or Swiss chard or, you know, ingredients that were just sort of coming into vogue that people were cooking with. But for Gail, there were downsides to Renee's job. It made everyone in the neighborhood, all my friends' parents, think that we were really fancy. So when all my friends got to have like mac and cheese and hot dogs and all those things, their parents assumed that I would never want to eat that because I grew up in this house that only cooked fancy food. Right, Gail needs Swiss chard. That's right. <laughs> so I was never invited anywhere for lunch to my friends' houses for lunch or dinner, and that made me upset because that's what I, it's all I wanted to eat. In fact, when it came to Gail's mom's work in food... Oh, I was resentful in some ways. Still, after high school, when Gail spent a summer working on a kibbutz, like a communal farm in Israel... She ended up with a job of cooking breakfast for the hundreds of people working there. In college, she decided she wanted to write for the campus newspaper. Her pitch to them, she'd review local restaurants. Despite all these clues, Gail says it never occurred to her that she was following in her mother's footsteps. When I was thinking about the fact that maybe I wanted to work in the food industry, I believed that I came to this realization all on my own. And when I would tell people that and talk about it with my 
parents' friends, of course, they all reacted in the same way. And they all said, oh, my God, you're just like your mother. And I was incredibly annoyed by that response because no 21-year-old in their right mind wants to be told they're just like their mother. (laughs) And my mother's reaction, amazingly, wasn't to say, I'm so proud, you know, I've molded her in my image. Her reaction was, I think she should be a lawyer. And actually, to this day, her reaction is still sort of, you know, if this whole food thing doesn't work out, you can still go to law school. Sorry, Renee. The food thing seems to be working out. Gail graduated, got some work writing about food. But an editor told her if she was going to go further in food writing, she needed more knowledge. She needed to be able to speak the language of restaurants and kitchens. So she moved to New York City and enrolled in culinary school. She went to work in some of the top kitchens of the era. First, the French restaurant Le Cirque, then the Southeast Asian Vong. At the time, she was the only woman working in each kitchen. You know, I went in a little bit naive, which I guess is good because it allowed me to do it. And if I had known more, I might not have agreed. These kitchens were incredibly physically taxing, regardless of gender. But I did see how so many of my male contemporaries were physically stronger than me. And the job is an incredibly physical job. I mean, you know, standing for 10 hours, 12 hours a day at a stove, chopping, lifting, frying, sauteing, whatever you're doing. At Le Cirque, there was an open kitchen, so diners could see the chefs working. Gail was stationed right in front, one of the most visible spots. She thought that was because it was good optics for the restaurant to show they had a woman on staff. And while working there, she had very specific tasks she was in charge of. One was making crepes every morning. There was a a dish on the menu that feels very 19... Well, I want to say 1985, but it was 1998 at the time. Um, (laughs) It was a beggar's purse. It was a crepe that was stuffed with, like, shrimp and seafood and gathered at the top and tied with a chive, like a little purse. Right. And there was this curry sauce that went on the plate. And so— The first step in that dish was making the crepes that you would put the filling into. And my job every morning when I would get there would be to make, I don't know, let's say 50 crepes. And there was this one pan that was passed down to whoever's job that was because you want a really well-seasoned pan. And I would sit at the back stove of the prep kitchen. And I remember how hard it was and how I felt like I was chastised a lot if they weren't perfect. And I remember crying at the stove on numerous occasions, but the stove was so hot and my face would get so red from the heat of the stove that no one could tell if I was crying or not. So I felt safe crying at the stove. That's a really sad story, but it's true. Being the only woman in the kitchen set Gail apart when the restaurant was open and after it closed for the night. All the guys would go out drinking. That wasn't really Gail's scene. And it was usually after midnight, so it's not like there were a lot of other friends for her to meet up with. But she needed some way to decompress after a day of hot stove crying. And so I would go home and read. I would read any food book I could kind of get my hands on. I would go back to my culinary school and get books. I'd borrow books from my parents, my friends, go to the library. You know, there's a bunch of great cookbook stores in New York City that I would scour. One day, Gail found a book called The Man Who Ate Everything by Jeffrey Steingarten. Now, Gail didn't know it at the time, but Jeffrey is one of the great food writers of the past half century. He's been the food critic for Vogue magazine for over 30 years. This book is a collection of some of his best pieces from the magazine. I stayed up all night for like three nights and read it. And it just clicked. I mean, that book was the like pinnacle of what I wanted to do. And I didn't know 
how to articulate it until I read that book. What was it about that book? Oh, God, it was everything. His humor as a writer is, I think, what everyone sees first when you read Jeffrey's work. And then there is an enormous, vast amount of research that goes into his writing. And that's what he was known for. He didn't just take a topic and write casually. He went to the depths of the universe to get to the bottom of a problem or a question or the origins of an ingredient or the history of a dish. But what interested me the most was that through all of these essays, he had an assistant. And it was that assistant that I wanted to be because that assistant spent her days, it was always a her, spent her days you know, going to the green markets to get ingredients and then testing recipes and then going to the library. And I went back to my culinary school with the book and I showed the book as if no one had known in New York City what this book was or who this man was. I was totally (laughs) naive. And I took the book to my culinary school sort of career advisor and said, this is my dream job. And the culinary advisor at my school laughed and said, it's really funny. I saw Jeffrey yesterday and he's looking for a new assistant. Gail got the job, and it came with all sorts of weird assignments. She searched for weeks for the best mortar and pestle to crush spices for Thai curry. She spent a month roasting goose after goose, and then coming home smelling like, well, goose. She loved it. But like with a lot of prestigious assistant gigs, it's not the kind of job people stay in for a long time. After two years, Gail took a job at Food & Wine magazine. And then one day, 2006, a small TV network called Bravo approached Food & Wine about collaborating on a new reality cooking show. They were testing out a concept and needed someone for the judging panel. Gail nailed her screen test. A few weeks later, she flew to San Francisco to tape the very first season of Top Chef. Coming up, Gail tells us how she thinks the show has changed over its 20 seasons. And we'll talk about what makes it different from other cooking competition shows. Stick around. Time to cook up some advertisements. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter, Emily, turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. (laughs) And so she is food motivated. And that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high quality pet food. 
Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe, so they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Now, let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated, okay? She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner, to get up off the couch. Whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week, we kicked off summer right with a visit to Grace Church on Martha's Vineyard. I consider their lobster rolls to be my personal favorites anywhere. Now, there's no official written recipe, but a guy named Roger walked me through how they do it. It's a shake of the pepper. Mix up the lobster, shake a little more, mix up some more. And then you put mayo in just to make it squish. That's the formula. Make it squish. Make Once it, squ- it squishes, you know you've got enough mayo. Is there a sound that you listen for? Yeah, absolutely. I want to hear. I'm going I'm to put my microphone close. I want to hear the you, sound. You, you won't be. I don't know if you'll hear. It. Let's try. I'm, it. I'm, I'm cranking up the volume. All right, let's hear it. That's the squish. That's the squish. Beyond the squish, I learned the shocking secret that makes Grace Church's lobster rolls so good, and the science behind it. That one's up now. Check it out. Okay, back to Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons. Gail's been a judge on Top Chef since its first season in 2006, alongside fellow judges Tom Colicchio and Padma Lakshmi, both of whom you've heard here on the show before. Now, each season, Top Chef brings a group of talented and entertaining chefs to a different city and puts them through a series of challenges. In one, they have to correctly prep a bunch of different ingredients as fast as possible. For starters, you're going to peel and then mince five ounces of garlic. Two, finely dicing two quarts of onions. Another challenge asks the chefs to create a restaurant in 24 hours, complete with a coherent theme and menu. Restaurant Wars is what 90% of the people that come to the competition crave. (laughs) To me, it's given me anxiety and flashbacks of opening a restaurant because I've done it. It just makes me want to vomit. 
Gail's role on the show is sort of the Jewish aunt, as the Daily Beast once put it. She's firm in feedback, but encouraging and fair. It has beautiful mellow lemon flavor, a strange but really alluring pop of horseradish. Love the really well-toasted bread. And I really like that smoked cheese. It came through. The ideas of your dish were too big for the bowl. And that's not because they weren't good. It's because you had, like, too much to say. I was excited to talk with Gail, not just about her role on Top Chef, but also what makes the show different from a lot of other cooking competition shows. For one, as I said to Gail, the show's more overtly political than most others in the genre. Last year, Top Chef did a season in Houston in the midst of a national conversation about abortion rights. Rather than avoid the topic of the show... We cooked for, you know, the former CEO and president of Planned Parenthood. Very, very, um, very intentional. I think part of it is being on Bravo. Yes. Where you, which is kind of already is like, uh, uh, in particular, you got... Andy Cohen there, who obviously, in terms of gay representation, I think has done a lot. Huge. It feels to me like Bravo as a network kind of skews blue state. It does. And other networks that have food programming skew a little more red state. You're right. That's fact. Don't forget, it's kind of an interesting piece of Bravo history. Our show grew out of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the original version. Queer Eye was the reason that the network became what it is now. Gail says before the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy aired in 2003, the biggest show on Bravo was Inside the Actors Studio. In the past ten and a half years, no one has been mentioned more often and with more respect by the other guests in that chair than tonight's guest. Back then, Bravo saw itself as kind of an arts network. Queer Eye was a big departure from that, both in its upbeat silliness and in putting gay men front and center. By 2003 standards, it was edgy. And it worked. Here's a little tip for you. Tell me. When buying the matching velour tracksuit, stop. Put it back on the rack. If your apartment smells so bad that you have to plug it in, that's a bad situation. For the next several years, everything that came out of Bravo was under those five pillars. Pop culture, fashion, beauty, food, and interior design. Because of those five guys. The first show that they made under that, those silos, was... Project Runway, a competition show about fashion. It did really well. And they spun it off to Top Chef. How do you think the show has changed over its 20 seasons? I think it's changed a lot, actually. Um, I don't recommend you go back to season one and watch it, mostly for the (laughs) hairstyles. Uh, But, you know, our show became about young talent in the food industry and discovering those young talents and giving them this opportunity. And even in the first and then second season— we learned that our viewer was much less interested in the sort of home cook or the amateur cook who wanted to be a chef or the culinary school student. They wanted to see talent at the at a craft that they were not usually privy to, right? We threw open the kitchen door and gave them insight into a world that most people weren't seeing at that time, right? The world of the professional restaurant kitchen. And what excites people the most was watching real talent at a craft that they could not do themselves. Uh, not unlike, in a way, watching professional athletes. That's interesting. I, I do feel like Top Chef is different in some ways from other some other cooking competition shows. And maybe that's sort of it, which is like a, a lot of them are kind of more about taking chefs out of the kitchen and putting them into basically like a game show environment that is a sort of a constructed world. And that can be fun and entertaining. 
ours is constructed too, to some degree, but it's about the idea of the professional kitchen. Right. It, it feels less like the chef has been like brought to you. Mm-hmm. You're also getting a window into their world. Right. You're going to them. You're watching. You're a fly on the wall. Gail also says that audience feedback pushed Top Chef to focus less on extracurricular stuff, you know, like storylines about the chefs in their shared house, romantic subplots. All that was a big part of the show in its early seasons. Now? 99% of the drama that takes place on our show takes place in the kitchen or at the judges' table. There used to always be like a villain and a nice one and a cute girl. It was so It's like terrible early reality television. None of that matters to our viewers anymore or to us. It's really just about the food and the chefs and what happens in the kitchen. Right. And th- those are, those are, a lot of those are very tired tropes. They are very tired tropes. And I think as reality television evolved, as food competition evolved, as our show evolved, as the food industry evolved, as the food industry became a nicer place that we could talk about and we can poke holes in and be open about how people need to be treated, the improvements that need to be made in the restaurant industry, the culture of the restaurant industry, and how it traditionally did follow these kind of terrible tropes and stereotypes. We were able to make our show a better place for it. And in turn, I think it's reflected onto the industry and vice versa. I feel like there have been a few chefs who've come through who kind of had a, a revelation about the kind of food they wanted to cook while they were on the show. And it was interesting to me, like, that these folks had restaurants mm-hmm. at that time. They were cooking in restaurants. So, like, in theory, they had the opportunity to go down a different path. But for whatever reason, they had it until they were on the show and it pushed them in a new direction. Absolutely. I think that's happened to a lot of the greatest of our chefs. They've had a lot of self-realization on the show. It is sort of like a... A very cathartic situation in ways. And most importantly, because what we're looking for is your point of view on the plate. It forces the contestants to really think hard about their voice. I think about contestants like uh, Nina Compton and Shirley Chung and Gregory Gourdet. Their specialty were cuisines that were not at all from their heritage. And I'm not saying you can only cook the cuisine your heritage at all. But for them in particular, Gregory was cooking Asian food, but he's a a first-generation Haitian. Shirley was cooking Italian food, but she's Chinese. And they came out of the show with this realization that, like, why, why are they ashamed to cook the food that they grew up with, the food that they love, and that they can now have this voice, this point of view, and show it to the world in the most beautiful way and tell the story of their people, of their culture, of their journeys of their families and give it their own spin. Shirley Chung, for instance, now runs a Chinese-American restaurant called Ms. Chi Cafe that features dishes like Kung Pao cauliflower and cheeseburger potstickers right alongside tea smoked duck. Shirley's bringing together the foods of her heritage with the influences that come from living in America. The result is a menu that's unique and true to her experiences. But until she was on Top Chef, Shirley hadn't been encouraged to figure out exactly what a menu based on her life would look like. In fact, her cheeseburger potstickers came out of a challenge on the show. These kinds of personal revelations have happened more and more in recent years on Top Chef, another key part of the show's evolution. I asked Gail how her approach to her own role on the show has changed over the years. A lot. Um, In the beginning, reality television competition was so new, and we didn't know what we were doing. We truly, Dan, didn't know what we were doing. Uh, I didn't even know what a competition show was except for Survivor, and that seemed like a bad idea in the food world. (laughs) And so it it took a long time for us to sort of, let's say, 
find our voices and our distinct point of views and have confidence in what we were doing as a show at all. Um, and at the beginning, there was this conception, this, this perception, excuse me, that everyone on a judging panel in every competition show had to have this, like, very specific role. You know, there was the Paul Abduls and the Simon Cowles. Right, you needed to have the, like, the nice one and the mean one and right. the quirky one. And you had to be, like, really divisive either way and uh, whatever it was. Right, it had to be like a, it was like a cable news approach to uh, uh Very black and white. Right. right. And after a few seasons, like, we would get feedback and, you know— listening to the viewers, we realized that they needed to trust us. And if they didn't like us and they thought we were mean and unfair, which we weren't necessarily ever unfair, but we were edited to be a lot more harsh. And I I came to understand that what my role was on our judges panel was to really sort of be the connection, the through line between the chefy chef world of Tom and the contestants and the viewer who was listening to Tom and the chefs talk in this language that they didn't fully understand. What does it mean if something has acid? Or what do you mean a julienne of something? Or what is that spice that I've never heard of before? And I sort of think that um, I resonated with people because I could be a bit of a translator. I was accessible as a normal person. I wasn't a chef, but I dwelled among them. I spoke their language, but then I also was a diner. Just like you, just like anyone. Right. But also, like, the, 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 the harsh, imperious food critic isn't really your style. No. And also, our viewers come to us because they, they, they not only do they trust us, but they look to us to explain and translate for them in a way that doesn't feel condescending, but that, you know, teaches everyone a little bit. Teaches me a ton, too. No matter what Gail thinks of the food the chefs cook, she says she often finds herself identifying with them and the pressure they put on themselves. In one episode this season, a talented young chef from Mexico, Gabriel Rodriguez, was in the bottom after making a mole dish inspired by his dad. Gail got a little emotional at the judge's table. You know, sometimes the weight of things we put ourselves under gets the better of us. It's, it's hard when it's not what you want it to be, and it's for someone so important. I think... That's it. It's hard. He had made that dish, I believe, for his father. And his father passed away. And how the pressure to to make this dish in this person's honor and how weighted that felt. And, you know, I understand that feeling. I lost my brother a few years ago. And I don't cook for him in that. It's not necessarily the cooking. But that feeling, that pressure of wanting to live up to someone. Yeah. You also said in that moment, it's challenging when you mess up when trying to impress your peers. Yeah. Well, I think also because you're doing it, don't forget, they're not just doing it in front of their peers. They're doing it on national television. And failure is so hard. I also think, you know, often people are like, how do you do that? It's, you know, it's terrible that you just stand and look them in the eye and tell them terrible things about what they did. We try not to be terrible. But... (laughs) It's not as if we invented the genre of criticism. Criticism right. <laughs> happens <laughs> right, uh, right. all over. Yeah, it happened before reality TV. Right. It was just also. in a I newspaper mean, or in a right, magazine. Right. There's art criticism and food criticism. And yeah, as long as people have been making things, other people have had opinions about it. That's right. There's always opinions. And actually, I think there is something very truthful about that, that we actually do it to their faces and give them a chance to respond. Most of the time as a chef, if you are the head of a restaurant, you will be you will be reviewed and you will be critiqued and it will never be perfect. And that's really hard on the ego. 
And when it's done in a newspaper, that's even harder because you have zero control. Someone comes in anonymously, you sometimes don't even know they're there, and then they write about it for the world, and that can really damage you. And we actually, unless you're the one person eliminated, we do, we really do give a lot of feedback, for better or worse, and give them a chance to explain themselves, and if they aren't eliminated, to start fresh the next day. So when Gail judges your cooking, she does it to your face. When the cameras stop rolling, as she said, she isn't so judgy. Meals aren't so high stakes, and it's not always about the food. But she admits getting to this point has been a process. She wasn't always so easygoing at dinner time. I used to put a lot of emphasis to, like, check all the boxes anywhere I went, especially when I was traveling. You know, to do enormous amounts of research and then, you know, make my list of all the places I really want to try and then systematically go through and check off that list. But what I realized, and actually I realized it on my honeymoon with my husband, Jeremy, we had this very ambitious list of places to go. We went to Vietnam on our honeymoon. And top of that list was one restaurant in Hanoi. And we tried going several times, and we struck out every time. We can't make a reservation. The line was too long. They closed the door. It closed by the time we got there. It was like we were, like, hitting a wall every time. And partially maybe because of jet lag, I just, like, broke down on the third try and lost my mind and cried for, like, the better part of 12 hours (laughs) on my honeymoon. And I'm sure Jeremy wanted to divorce me, you know, five days in. (laughs) I have a feeling Um, he knew what he was getting into, but still. Well, he did, yes. We were together a long time. But this was like a real level of of WTF, you know what I mean? (laughs) And then I like woke up the next morning still puffy and, and had to like give it a really good think and then like let go of it. And realize, I mean, just saying it out loud, it's ridiculous. It's okay. You don't, not everything has to have so much weight. Not every meal has to be exactly what you were prescribed to do or has to be perfect or has to be the place. And as Gail says, if the meal doesn't pan out the way you hoped, just wait. That's what's so beautiful about eating is that no matter how full you are or how good or bad your last meal was, in five hours from now, you will be hungry again. <laughs> it's just the nature of being alive. Uh, that's right. You can put it on our tombstones. Yep. Always hungry. (laughs) We'll be hungry again in five hours. That's right. (laughs) That's Gail Simmons. The season finale of Top Chef All-Stars airs this Thursday, June 8th on Bravo. Don't miss it. And there's some other big Top Chef news that just broke in the last couple days, and that is that Padma Lakshmi, the longtime host, is stepping down from the show. She wrote on Instagram, quote, It's time to move on and make space for Taste the Nation, my books, and other creative pursuits. Taste the Nation, of course, Padma's show on Hulu. We learned about Padma leaving Top Chef after I talked with Gail, so I couldn't ask Gail about it directly, but she did tell the New York Times, quote, I could not have asked for a better host and partner in the job. There's no denying her impact on our show, and she'll be missed in our future Top Chef adventures. Now, here on The Sporkful, we've had Padma on twice before, so we're going to be releasing those episodes in the feed, taking them out of the paywall for just a few weeks. So if you want to hear more about Padma's rise to stardom, how she got to where she is now, you can find those in our feed. One more note on Gail Simmons. Be sure to check out her cookbook, Bringing It Home, Favorite Recipes from a Life of Adventurous Eating, and her memoir, Talking With My Mouthful, My Life as a Professional Eater. Get them wherever you get your books. Next week on the show, we're talking about food smuggling. You know, like when Gail was smuggling biltong into North America. We'll find out why people smuggle food into America 
and we'll meet the people trying to stop them. That's next week. In the meantime, check out some of our recent episodes, including the American Hot Dog Road Trip with comedian Jamie Loftus and my visit to Grace Church for Lobster Rolls. The Sporkful is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Abigail Keel. Editing by Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. I'm Adam in L.A. I'm Jonathan in L.A. Reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat eat more more better. better. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.